You're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio. Every Wednesday night at midnight. Good evening, everyone. You are on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Also available at 3cr.org.au. And tonight you're listening to Dialogues with me, Meg Kimber, and I'm joined in the studio by Mark Og from the Australia Institute. He is the Principal Advisor on Climate and Energy. Thank you for joining me, Mark. No worries. Great to be here, Meg. Yeah. So firstly, can we start with your work at the Australia Institute? Because we, I know you're also an artist and you're a painter and you teach painting, but we might get to that a little bit later in the show. But to start with... Um, if there's someone listening who doesn't know what the Australia Institute is, can we just start with that? Yeah, sure. So the Australia Institute is a we're, we're an independent research organisation, <clears throat> and we're funded by uh, mostly by philanthropists, but also by just ordinary people who want to see some research on progressive issues like uh, climate change, um, health, education, equality, all of those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, we do we we do research around I guess around issues that we think are really important for the public debate, but also also issues where there's either a lack of information or an imbalance of information. Mm-hmm. So classic examples are things like um, you know the economic arguments around mining. Mm-hmm. Um, there's because the mining industry puts out such uh, strong dialogue about the economic benefits that it says it provides, mm-hmm. um, that tends to dominate the public debate. But in fact, when you look more closely, there's a lot of downsides to mining. Mm. So, um, and you know, that can be easily demonstrated with research. So we often scrutinise the claims by the mining industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we travel around to regional areas or we do, we do national media or state media or local media. And, um, and, you know, we put that research in front of people so that people can, you know, better understand the reality of how the mining Im- industry um, impacts the rest of the economy. So it's that kind of thing. But th- but it, we also do that with a whole lot of things around um, uh, issues that impact people, you know, services we get in the community and, um, and uh, other environmental issues and equality and gender issues and all of that kind of thing as well. Mm. I didn't realise it was so broad what the Australia Institute did. I thought it was like climate focused and environment focused, but that, that, that's de- definitely a large part of our right. focus. But yeah. um, but we cover we cover whatever issues we think are important for the mm-hmm. national kind of policy debate. And it's a really good point about research because research. I think people think that research is completely neutral. But mm. it's it's always invested in a particular thing because it's like it has to be funded somehow. So somebody has to say like this is worth being an, an, a topic of research, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, yeah, all research has a purpose. Um, certainly our research is, you know, we are objective and we're very stringent and kind of rigorous in our in our research to make sure that we present the evidence um, fairly Uh, I suppose we you you know a lot of our research is just on issues that we think are important so um, when you do research into climate change and climate change policy Mm -hmm. um, you know that that often 
you know, when you look at it closely, when you scrutinise it, that will um, effectively tell the story, you, you know, tell the kind of story that supports stronger action on climate change mm-hmm. just because because that's, that's the actually facts. the reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so from a more personal level, like how did you actually get involved in working in this sector? Um, I... I feel it's a it's a kind of an odd story. It's, I feel a bit like an accidental tourist in a way. But um, <laughs> I was uh, about probably about twelve years ago. I I'd been a, actually a visual artist my uh, you know my entire working life pretty much, yeah. and um, and you know that's all I was doing. And then about probably about I think it was about twelve years ago, I had a few changes in my um, just my life and circumstances and I decided I really wanted to get involved with climate change activism just because I was um, really concerned about climate change and just really worried about it and so mm. yeah, I just really wanted to get involved and I um, kind of stumbled across this across this group beyond zero emissions and mm-hmm. um, worked with uh, quite a, an amazing guy called uh, Matthew Wright and um, and uh, he and and I guess he was the sort of um, he was quite an amazing in terms of his um, uh, understanding of energy issues particularly around around climate change yeah, but right. kind of across all sectors and I discovered that I had a bit of an aptitude for um, kind of building the organisation and um, and uh, I guess kind of community organising but also also sort of telling a story through research so we worked together and that built up to quite a, a big thing and um, then over time I've just done a, a few other things and at the moment I'm with the Australia Institute, which is um, also energy, you know, energy and climate related, and and um, I do kind of similar things for them. Mm. Was it surprising for you to discover that you had this aptitude that you speak of? Because, or, or you know, do you think that the the creative zone and the kind of um, community organising zone have more similarities than they might appear at, at first glance? Uh, I, I think, um, so I was surprised. Like I, I was particularly surprised because I didn't, because I didn't really have a, I didn't have a background in engineering or economics per se, but um, I f- found that I was quite good at um, working with people who did to sort of, to, to tell the story about the issues right. that were really important. So I, you know, I it, it was really about finding people's expertise and a lot of, I guess a lot of people who are very strong on technical stuff don't necessarily put it into a, a format that really kind of clearly tells the story that needs to be told. Right. So I think that was kind, that was kind of my skill and I, I guess I was surprised that I had a quite a strong aptitude for just getting across the material pretty quickly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I I think also just as an artist, you know, you spend your entire life sitting in the studio, so I was (laughs) kind of surprised that I also had a bit of an aptitude of, you know, talking to people and (laughs) Human interaction. Yeah, yeah, human interaction. And so that, that was all... 
good. But I think the the creativity thing is interesting because um, I used to think that it was, you know, that they were com- it was completely separate from my art career. But I, mm-hmm. I, I think I've realised over time that when you're when you're an artist, you really have to kind of um, you really have to make come up with how would you put it? You've got to think pretty laterally and and sort mm. of build things up out of nothing, if you like. So, um, mm. so it's entirely driven by your own initiative and and what you can imagine and and that kind of thing. So I think doing years of that, when I came into this sort of field, I was able to sort of look around and see possibilities and act on them in a way that perhaps um, people who had come up through organisations. Um, because organisations have kind of constraints and um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know be, uh, const- you know th- th- there's all sorts of constraints in organisations. Whereas mm. I guess to some extent, I think the art the art training helped me to just kind of sort of see opportunities and go for it. Whereas uh, where other people might have thought they were, um, you know, might just might not have. Thought, mm. that, thought that way about things. Yeah, they might be more like, are we allowed to do this thing? Or, you know, like, yeah, the yeah. idea with arts practice, I think, is very much sort of like going beyond limitations and, and thinking more broadly about how you can express something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and organisations right. are, by their nature, somewhat institutional, usually, mm. like, and have these kind of like handed down ideas about how you should do things. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You You have like a, a bunch of things that you do in that organisation, yeah, and that's the and and you think and that's kind of your toolbox and that's what you work with. So sometimes somebody coming in from the outside can kind of you know come up with things that aren't you know that aren't the ingrained practice of that organisation and yeah and they can work or you know they can not work. You know, it's yeah, yeah, like, yeah. There's there's definitely some there's probably some disadvantages with thinking outside the box too. You like know. Sometimes you're just like, Mm-mm. no, that's right, <laughs> this is not going to work. And, and and there's been plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> and so on the topic of um, uh, environment and and uh, climate change, mm-hmm. you said before that. Uh, your mentor would that be i'm not sure that's the right term at at beyond zero emissions um was he a founding uh sort of member yeah he was a founding member right yeah and so the stuff with energy i'm just i don't know if this is a digression or not but i'm just interested in you know the current um situation that we have politically in australia in terms of like whether people are recognizing climate change as a real uh Gen, uh, like something that's really happening, uh, you know, mm. and in politics you get one kind of a message, but then if you're there on the ground mm. working with people on a community level or, mm. or like mm. local government level, what kind of feeling that you have about the realities of changing the way that we use energy in Australia? Um, well, there's probably two issues there. There's climate change itself and then there's sort of energy, which right. is you know, renewable energy and all of that kind of thing, and they're related but sort of a bit separate. Yeah. But I guess um, on on climate change, um, you know, we do polling and there's overwhelming concern about climate change. Yeah. So there's no no doubt about that. There's very few people who are actually climate sceptics. Right. And there's a smaller but substantial group who don't accept that it's human cause, but most people, you you know, there's a very large 
um, a large majority of the population accepted, you know, it's are very concerned, accepted mm. it's caused by people and um, want something done about it. Mm. Uh, what, the pro- thing that's happened, the, the, the thing that holds us back a little bit is that they don't, people don't necessarily have it as their, you know, in their top few voting issues. So mm-hmm. they're, they're worried, they're kind of more inclined to vote on jobs, health, education, that kind of thing, and aren't quite joining the dots in terms of right. how serious it is. But that's, I think that's in large part just because there's been a real lack of emphasis put on by our kind of elected leaders. And I yeah. think, um, I think the uh, the, the way I would describe it is it's like smoking. I used to smoke cigarettes and we all knew that it was killing us. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd look around and this was, you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. you'd look around and everybody was smoking. So you just mm-hmm. thought, well, it can't be that bad because if it was, yeah. we wouldn't be allowed to do this. Everybody have to be crazy to smoke. <laughs> That's right. And so climate change is right. the same because our yeah. leaders aren't sort of telling us, hey, this is an absolute emergency. Yeah. Then you kind of look look around and think, well, if it was really that bad, they wouldn't let this keep happening. They but take it seriously. That's right. Yeah. But it is actually that bad. In fact, it's it's terrible. It's an interesting analogy because now smoking is really socially frowned upon and you don't see people smoking and now I remember like when I was younger you'd see people smoking and the change of legislation has meant that there's a change in in social practice basically yeah so you can't smoke at pubs and clubs anymore and and this kind of stuff and then that that foreshadows a social change rather than the other way around and so legislation made this different environment and Mm. now you see someone smoking you think oh my god I can't believe someone's smoking yeah and uh, it could potentially be the same with strong leadership Mm. that um, the things that actually have to happen because I think it's hard for people to take things seriously in the abstract yeah like it's hard for them to be like well, there's this thing, but it's just a very ex- existential threat. Yeah. And what? How does it actually relate to my life? Yeah. And what can I actually do? Yeah. To make a difference. Yeah. But if you see real action happening, mm. you can engage on on that point. Yeah. Which I guess would be change in how we extract resources, use energy, and what kind of waste and yeah. emissions and things that we have. Well, I think the you know there's. There's your personal um, – well, one of the issues is just that it's such a big thing that, yeah. um, you know, you or I don't have a lot of control over how electricity is produced, you know. but Very little control. That, that's right. So <laughs> so what we have to do is make sure our elected, you know, our elected representatives a- actually act on this stuff and that's why I guess, you know, we need to channel our energy into political action – and um, and and community action to to build support for policies that actually deal with climate change. So um, so that makes it kind of inherently uh, political, if you like. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. political is one way to describe it. But another way to describe it is just building support in the community for for, for good policy, which is dealing with a, a really um, a really important thing that we need to deal with urgently. Mm. Uh, We'll just take a little break. We'll have some community announcements. You're listening to 3CR and this is Dialogues. Are we on a path to totalitarianism? Are governments and technocrats developing technologies that hand them greater control over our lives? 
In the face of such far-reaching webs of control, what are we to do? With speculative minds Lizzie O'Shea, Timothy Eric Strom, and Jacob Grek, we're going to be exploring these questions and more through a live panel discussion. Tune in on Wednesday, September 26th from 7am on 3CR Breakfast, where we contemplate the societies of the future. Let's reclaim our minds from the cultural engineers. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts, face the future, face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR and this is Dialogues. I'm Meg Kimber and I'm joined in the studio by Mark Ogg, who is the Principal Advisor on Climate and Energy at the Australian Institute, but also an artist. And we will be coming to that later. But we've already had a little bit of a chat about how creative practice has been really useful to you in your career as a climate and energy specialist. But um, we were talking before the break about politics of climate and what's happening in Australia more broadly. More specifically, what kind of things are you seeing on the ground in Australia? Well, I I actually had a really interesting week this week because one of the things we're doing is we're trying to just alert people to how kind of serious and immediate the the issue of climate change is. So we're looking at, uh, we've got this program up and running called Heatwatch and one of the really direct impacts of climate change is that it increases the amount of days of extreme heat and I'm sure people in Melbourne and Sydney and all around Australia and regional areas have noticed that we're getting more days of extreme heat yeah. and, and and that's a really um, you know important impact that has huge ramifications so what we're looking at is the the increase in day what we'd call extreme heat days so days over 35 degrees and um, so what's actually happened to date historically how much have they increased because of global warming and Secondly, what's projected to happen in the future? Because the CSIRO use climate models and can project, um, they they can project with degrees of certainty um, how many more extreme day, days we're going to have in in the future. So we can do this for any location in Australia, and we kicked it off with um, this week with Rockhampton in central Queensland. So we went up to uh, Rockhampton, which is a beautiful town in central Queensland. And um, we published a paper looking at what what's happened there. So trad- historically, Rockhampton had about 18 days a year of over 35 degrees, which is a fair few. Mm-hmm. And over the last 20 years, that's gone up to about 24 or 25 days a year. But the scary thing is that by 2070, they're, they're going to have about 70 days a year over 35 degrees oh if God. we continue yeah. on a business-as-usual kind of rate of greenhouse gas pollution. And combined with the very high humidity up there, 
that's actually a devastating yeah. outcome. I mean, that that knock on effects for so many areas. Yeah, it's yeah. like health, um, yeah. general well-being, uh, agricultural production, livestock. Um, you know, it'll cause heat-related deaths. Every every aspect of people's life will be impacted, mm. and this kind of thing is happening all over Australia. So we we went up there and we um, released the research and, and had a press conference um, in Rockhampton, and it was really interesting because we got every single media outlet in the region turning up to the press conference. People mm. really wanted to know about it. Yeah. Um, and, and that really, uh, you know, the perception is that people don't want to talk about climate change and yeah. they particularly don't want to in these regional areas because uh-huh. that's that's coal country up there, right? But the reality is that as soon as we got out there and actually started talking to people on the ground, mm. um Everyone turned out to talk about it. It was on every TV station, uh, radio interviews, papers, the, the work. So mm. it just really reinforced to me that um, there's a real appetite out there for pe- people to find out what's going on. Um, they're really concerned about it and, you know, they want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really interestingly up there, that's that's actually... Uh, it's actually the most marginal political seat in Australia and the local member is a climate sceptic and advocate for the coal industry and she was, um, y- you know, she she came out, um, how would you describe it? She, <laughs> she was pretty, she was pretty um, uh, she was, she- energetic <laughs> in her attack on us and... Um, but, you know, I don't think it washes people because people are out there and they're saying, well, yeah, actually it is getting hotter and if it keeps getting hotter, this is going to be terrible and um, if my elected representative doesn't think it's actually happening, Relevant, they're not going to yeah. do anything to help. So, you know, they're not acting in my best interest. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny that um, the, po- the political terrain is so odd in a way because there's all this talk about drought and yeah. how farmers are affected and the party that's considered to be the country party, the the national party is, um, you know, doesn't really want to go there in terms of climate change. But no. how long is that going to last? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, um, yeah, I think people are really waking up to it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so um, you said that you got involved yourself. It was a change of, of career and that before that you were working as an artist. Mm. Um, but you're still continuing your arts practice at the same time. And you mentioned earlier that um, you felt like there was more of a cohesiveness between the two aspects as you've gone on. Mm. Um, and it's been 12 years you've been uh, working in this area of uh, raising awareness about Polit- uh, about climate and 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 that kind of energy policies and things like that. As you've gone over in the twelve years, what's sort of changed from this this position where you were like an outsider and coming in with this fresh look, mm. and now you know for yourself your own arts practice, but also for your own like trying to achieve this goal of getting people more aware and getting people's voices out about this topic. Yeah. Um, look, I think. Um in terms of my art career, I don't think my uh, well, it certainly had an impact. I, I don't, I just don't do as much art as I did, and so my career's definitely, you know, suffered for not being able to spend that amount of time. But I still do, you know, pretty substantial commissions and sell paintings and, and stuff like that. But just yeah. n- nowhere near as much as I used to do. 
Um, so that's, you know, I mean, there's always trade-offs in what you decide to do and I get a lot out of the out of uh, both. So I, I really like to be able to um, do both. It just really suits me. But um, I think... Uh, I think in terms of my art, see a lot of artists, um, I think, who have political uh, things that they want to express will try mm. and express it through their art yeah. and do political art and hope that people see it and that changes people's perspective. I don't do that at all. My painting probably has a kind of a, a deeper sort of, you know, I'm trying to say trying to say something in my artwork that is um you know that I think is important but it's not it's not aimed at it's kind of not um yeah you know it, it's not political in a direct sense and it's not um kind of edgy prop sort of stuff so uh so I keep them quite separate and so my art I don't think my art has been changed much by the activism or well, it's not really activism but by the climate sort of work that I do per se it's mm. just kind of I just do two things mm-hmm. you know I kind of have two parallel careers if you like but mm. you know a lot of people there's a lot of um, business people who have political careers and so there's nothing wrong with you know I, I guess um, you know just because you just because you, you you can do two things you just have less time to do both of them I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yep. yeah. which is the common experience of a lot of artists yeah, because there is that element of um, financial security, yeah, and the choices around those kind of things, and um, yeah, how how you relate to your community, and like you say, whether you want your art practice to be political, mm. but if not, if you want to explore things that are still like essential to the human condition and relevant and important for people to relate to in a, in a creative way. And to consume that kind of art, um, but I imagine there's a possibility that it could be a nice kind of freedom to be free from, to like have that part of yourself met in your um, campaigning work and mm. not have to bring that to your artistic work. Mm. You, it gives you a freedom to just focus on letting the art be what what it wants to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd much prefer to keep them separate. Um, I think I don't. And I, because I don't, um, no, well, yeah, look, I guess art can, you know, <laughs> I, I think um, I'm a little bit sceptical about art changing. I think there is possibilities, there's definitely ways that art can bring about social change, but um, I think that particularly with the visual arts, um, it often speaks to a, fairly rarefied small audience so um so i don't certainly in what i do i I don't kind of see that as a way that it would be effective in bringing about change anyway so i wouldn't you know just dismiss it out of hand but Mm -hmm. um Mm. but uh for me I, i kind of feel i can be more effective by actually getting out there and you know just sort of telling the story and and um speaking to people mm. and what uh, did you train in painting was that your yeah, medium? I, I, yeah. I, I worked i um, studied at vca victorian college of the arts and mm. um and then for many years i actually worked as a theater set painter for oh. melbourne theater company and 
and um, scenic studios and others. And so, cool. like making the kind of things that are uh, the back of the set that yeah. make people think that there's acres of fields behind someone or something like that. That's the one. Yeah, the big, <laughs> the big scenic backdrops, which wow. is amazing. Thing yeah, again, you know, it was an incredible. Uh, you know, because that's a tradition, a theatrical kind of craft tradition that goes back centuries. And so learning that was amazing. And yeah. working in theatre, I loved working in theatre. Like Melbourne Theatre Company was a great place to work. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, it was really exciting. And I got the skills to paint really, really large things. So that really stood me in good stead for, um, you know, when for my more, you know, other commissions and that kind of thing. So is that what you usually, uh, when you're working on a commission or a, a particular uh, piece of work, you're thinking in a really big scale, like you're working on a big Not, picture? Uh, for, for the commission work I do I, is often on a big scale, like it's quite, you know, often very big. Um, but I also do, probably the mainstay of my work is just oil paintings really, which range from pretty small to medium-sized paintings I guess they're, they're the kind of more personal work that I do but then I do work for um, you know Spiegel tents and Luna Park and those kinds of places which is much more sort of fun and uh, you know just it's just more fun and, and um, whimsical sort of work I guess yeah and is that like big kind of murals in public spaces yeah, yeah. No, I mean Luna Park. I've done a lot of work in Luna Park, and then, but I also the Spiegel tent work tends to be for, so they're, it's in public places, but they're on travelling, they're travelling shows. So that you know, oh. been, so I paint, uh, the I painted the facade of a Spiegel tent that's in Melbourne at the moment, for instance. So that's oh cool. Um, yeah, so it's in a public space, but it moves. <laughs> and so when you, when you like uh, say the Spiegel tent um, painting, do they come to you and be like, this is what we want? We, do they have a very specific idea about what they want visually it to look like? Or are you kind of a designer as well in the sense um, that you're making decisions about that? Usually people come to me and say, you know, I've got this, um, I've got a, you know, I want some artwork for this purpose mm-hmm. and um, maybe give throw, throw in some things, you know, sort of talk to me about what they're after but then I'll come back to them with uh, you know with a suggestion of what to you know what I would do mm. and uh, and generally that's what we end up doing so so there is a bit of input from the from the clients but I guess they they come to me um because they like the look of what I do mm-hmm. so um so they yeah, but but there's definitely collaboration. I certainly there's a I, I do a lot of work for a US company called Spiegel World, and um, there's definitely a lot of collaboration with uh, Ross, who's the guy who runs that. And and so I actually really enjoy the collaboration. Like he th- throws in ideas, and and um, having that dialogue is really is really good fun. Mm. Because you mentioned before, like that was one of the things that um, was a really attractive part of the campaigning work and working for Beyond Zero Emissions and um, that there's that element of really being engaged with the community and mm. doing a lot of that kind of collaborative work. Mm. I feel like that as well. I really like prefer working with other people and having other people to bounce ideas off. Yeah. It, yeah. Se- it does seem a bit odd to kind of be... Um, 
away on your own in a studio and and mm. and be turning an idea into something material f- for other people to be able to see or or engage with um did you find when you were studying art that that was how it was um what you were meant to achieve at that time when you were at VCA well i i actually i mean i actually think that even though I found the studio, the constant studio lifestyle too much and yeah. I wanted to be more engaged and, and certainly the large-scale commission stuff, I, you know, is sort of more more engaged and collaborative. Um, I actually am a big believer in people, you know, spending the time on their own and doing the artwork. And, in fact, I, I kind of feel a bit... Today there's just a bit too much collaboration. Like... You, you, l- like it, it is actually really important to work slowly with ideas and have the discipline to work day in day out and and refine them and develop them and and have an imaginative life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually, particularly in this kind of with the sort of onslaught from digital media, I think that's actually uh, really diminished. There's there's not enough artists who actually take the time to refine their craft mm-hmm. and 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 really um and and really work imaginatively and the i i gather that the focus of a lot of arts training and you know arts qualifications now is not necessarily on uh technique and skill development Mm. but on ideas and and uh, and that kind of thing i'm not sure if that's correct but that's that's the what i've gathered yeah yeah, which to me is ridiculous because, yeah. like, either you have ideas or you don't, right? And if you've got nothing to say, then you've got nothing to say and no amount of talking about it is going to change that. Whereas what can really be helpful is if the simple, cra- you know, skills of the craft, like tone and colour and yeah. composition and, um, you know, making a punchy image, if they're taught, then that frees you to be mm-hmm. able to, to, to make powerful work. Mm. But... Sadly, art schools don't actually teach that now. Mm. They're, they're because you know, really, most of the teachers don't actually have those skills anyway. Mm-hmm. So, mm. I think it's kind of sad, and I think it's actually reflected in a lot of the the work um, that you see it that you see around the place mm. at the moment. <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, there's a parallel for what I'm kind of my area of interest, which is literature, and mm. I. Uh, studied that at uh, university and there's this concept that you can't teach someone to be a writer Mm. and um but just like with art there's all of these practical skills and and training in in understanding and being able to identify the craft and the components and like all of those kind of things um and so you can teach that Mm. And like you say, if you have the idea, uh, there's nothing more frustrating than having something that you do want to express, which is a very human thing. And I think where art like really springs from is that kind of desire to explore something that that can't be explored completely rationally. Mm. And you're not just going to want to write an essay about it or a scientific thesis or something, but you actually kind of want to get into something a bit more complicated and, and hard to to express mm. and that's why art's useful yeah. and if you don't have the skills to be able to do that i imagine that's very frustrating for people who are artistic and have that creative drive 
and want to study to be able to put their ideas out there but yeah. uh, instead of just getting like not not that yeah i think that's exactly right just the way you put it it's just frustrating if you do, if you want to express something and you don't have the skills to do it yeah. then um then you don't have freedom mm. um and but but it's funny and it's kind of it's so ironic isn't it because because you know a lot of people cast those skills as somehow inhibiting your freedom but actually they they give you the freedom yeah probably because of the um like you say the level of dedication that's required to mm. invest the amount of hours that are necessary to become proficient at mm. that particular skill yeah um which but i think that there is also a, a something of being in flow when you're in the creative process and you're in the flow of it that is in just like inherently satisfying yeah. like it rewards you just in that moment yeah yeah and the skill having the skill allows you to get in the flow yeah because then you're not just there going like how do i make this happen i know i know <laughs> that, that's right that just pulls you out of the flow straight away so yeah. um well we'll just take another little break uh you're listening to 3cr this is dialogues a curious smile Behind closed eyes, remarkable hidden things that shine. A home in the west and one in the east. The most exquisite pirates' feast. Skills required to converse with beasts. There's always something more. There's always something more. There's always something more. To endlessly explore, to endlessly explore Oh 
you're listening to Dialogues on 3CR, this is 855am. You can also see our show and listen to it at 3cr.org.au slash dialogues. And if you have a smartphone and you like podcasts, you can podcast this show. And if you're listening on podcast, thank you and welcome. I'm Meg Kimber and I'm joined in the studio by Mark Ogg, who's a Principal Advisor on Climate and Energy at the Australia Institute and also a VCA-trained artist. And um, we haven't actually really – I don't know whether we've really kind of focused in very strongly on if there's any specific similarities or differences between kind of like arts practice. I know you said at the beginning that you felt like it helped you in doing the climate work. But, um, yeah, is there something that you can think of that you learned at VCA when you were studying that was part of your practice that was like – a really useful part of of your work now in that field of of climate and energy i think it's just really i think it's just really the ability to be imaginative and and also to be a real self starter because yeah you know um everything you know everything you do in art has to be sort of self driven that's that's what makes it actually a really hard thing to do you've got mm. to completely drive it from every aspect of it and yeah and that's really helpful when you that's been really helpful for me I should say in mm. the whole climate and energy um world because you know I can think of a project and start it and figure out the things that I need to do to carry it out and so it's I guess it's having that initiative and you, you know have, I, I guess I developed that you know to the extent that I did that initiative through my art career and just being a bit um yeah, just a bit less. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and just being imaginative, I guess, mm. sort of translates in some way. Mm. And do mm. you think you were trained in that at when you studied? Uh, only by default, because yeah. the because we, um, you know, VCA is probably similar now. But mm. I remember getting to VCA expecting to learn things like you know how to paint and stuff, <laughs> being the painting department and all. And um, you mean you would think you would yeah. think. <laughs> so, but I remember getting there and just sort of sitting. You know, we were assigned a little um, cubicle, and and then I went to the cubicle and kind of sat there for a few days and <laughs> waiting for someone to come and teach me something. And then I, I realised after a while that that just wasn't going to happen. You you actually had to just do it yourself and the tuition ended up being uh, a fortnightly half hour tutorial with a staff member to kind of talk about your work conceptually so so we really um there was very little tuition and um you taught yourself to paint yeah well I taught myself but, but also um to some extent um but also just I met a lot of people who also wanted to learn and so I guess we taught each other yeah and um kind of um bounced off each other so mm. it wasn't I certainly didn't learn in a vacuum I I met people who mm. who were also really engaged with art and we engaged with um you know we went and sought out really good art and we read literature and um and and art books and mm-hmm. and just built it up ourselves so mm. I was just lucky to come across those people so mm. I, I certainly don't want to give the impression that it all happens that it happens in a kind of a you know just in your own head mm. there is definitely that bouncing off people but I think you do also have to really be prepared to spend the time 
working yourself in a really disciplined but but kind of imaginative way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which kind of leads us on to a topic that we were going to talk about, which is the current studio that you have, which is a warehouse. Yeah. I've, yeah. So I've been really lucky over the last um, 10 or so years to have a um, – to be – leasing a, a warehouse in Brunswick uh, in Hope Street and and that it's we call it Studio Brunswick and it's um, just over the years we've had some you know a bunch of fantastic artists and creative people working there. How many sort of studios or separate artists do you have? Uh, at the moment there's at the moment there's four separate artists but we also have a photography studio yeah right um, as well mm. uh and but i yeah it's ve- it's varied over the years depending on how many people we get in and what disciplines and all of that kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's the size of it is it like the photography studio takes up a fair bit and then you have little separate rooms that you've built or uh I, i've always kept the rooms pretty big yeah and so that people have enough space and also but but we've kept the prices low as well so that it's affordable affordable for people yeah and so the the photography studio takes up a fair bit of space at the moment but there's there's um still a few a few artists there yeah yeah and there's, I mean, how long has it been going? Ten years? Uh, yeah, probably even a bit longer, maybe 11 or 12 years. Do yeah. you have any idea about, like, what's the situation for artists these days who, like, need a space like that and are looking for studio spaces? Or maybe, you know, for yourself because <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. there's news about how what's happening with the space, right? Yeah, well, we're, our space is suffering the fate that so many other spaces suffer which is gentrification where they get bought up for apartments Mm -hmm. and um look i you know i actually support you know high density density inner city living i think it's a good thing around our area that that that's being built up in the apartments that are being built in on on the place i'm in are actually Mm. nightingale apartments which are very ecologically friendly and and the guys who did the commons right yeah Yeah. the same the same crew so that's a really good thing but it, but it does come at the cost of artists getting pushed out, yep. basically, yeah. and um, so that's sad. And I just having had a bit of a look around, um, art spaces in Melbourne are just way 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 more expensive mm. than mm-hmm. than you know I was leasing mine out for. That's for sure. And totally. um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> foolish me, but. Um, <laughs> But so yeah, it's an end, end of an era, era, and it's mm. been it's been really great. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a real challenge for artists to actually get space these days. Mm. But there seems to be a lot of empty warehouses around. If people wanted, to, I guess it's a quite a big undertaking to take mm. on a commercial lease of a big property. Yeah, and actually make that happen. Yeah, like you know, for the space I had that probably these days would probably want $70,000 or something like that for a year. Yeah. And then you've got to be able to lease it out and then manage God knows how many um, uh, artists who, you know, can sometimes be challenging to manage. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, it's, it's, um, there are big warehouses around, but they want a lot of money for them. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of stuff you've got to do around, you know, making them, building walls and mm-hmm. making them habitable and safe and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of thing. So yep. so it is difficult. Yeah. But I think that the basic problem, you know, you can do all that and, it, and it, look, it's 
been great fun to do. Yeah. But the basic problem now is just that the per square meter it's just much more expensive. Yes. All of the costs of rentals, whether commercial or residential, yeah. I've completely skyrocketed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have to finish up, but before we go, did you want to let people know about what's happening at the warehouse? Yeah. Well, we've uh, we're having so because we're we're, cl- we're closing down at the end of November, uh, we're having a celebration of. Uh, 10 years of creativity at Studio Brunswick so it's at 24 Hope Street Brunswick and that will be on Friday the 19th of October Uh, we'll have I think we've got something like 25 artists now so people who have been involved with the studio in different ways so Mm. um, it'll be 6 to 8 p.m Um, some great artists there uh, some fantastic music with a sensational local band called Mayhem <laughs> and um which and I'm laughing because I'm in that band so, <laughs> <laughs> so people know why that's funny and, yep. but, but they are but yeah but they are great yeah. and uh, <laughs> of course and um yeah so it should be really good fun and we're also 20% of the sales of the artworks are going to um raise some funds for Friends of the Earth which are a fantastic um, activist group in Melbourne, just down the road and here a, in Smith Street, and a sponsor of, at Three CR. So sponsor, yeah. yeah, and look, what a, there we go. Look, we finally at the end of this conversation, we got to the point where art and um, climate <laughs> activism come together, <laughs> and it's at Twenty Three Hope Street. Is that right? 20, 20, 24 to Twenty Six Hope, Hope Street. Yeah, and I guess the warehouse has been a big part of the community there, where the people are aware of it or not, like just walking by and, you know, like the ways that these sort of spaces really, mm. you know, inhabit a particular location. So it's exciting that you're doing something to celebrate that space and, and yeah. yeah, give it a good farewell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark, on Dialogues on 3CR. No worries. Thanks, Meg. Okay.